Thank you for listening to Mormon Discussion Podcast. I am your host, Bill Real. I just want to make a plea to listeners. This podcast survives on the financial contributions of listeners like you. Please help keep the podcast alive by becoming a premium subscriber by going to mormondiscussionpodcast.org and becoming a subscriber today. You can do so for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. This greatly supports the podcast. And if you donate at a higher level, $50 or $100 a year, you get a free Mormon Discussion Podcast logo t-shirt. Also, don't forget the new bookstore that you can reach on the website by clicking the link, Bookstore. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion. I'm your host, Bill Real. And uh, I, today I want to talk to you about an awesome talk that was given at the BYU Business College. So if you follow BYU, you'll know that BYU uh, in Utah, in Provo, they have like a weekly uh, devotional where a speaker in the church will give a, a talk, essentially. And LDS... Uh, BYU-Idaho uh, does the same thing. So BYU-Idaho and BYU-Provo. Uh, but also the BYU Business College, LDS Business College, does the same thing as well. Now, theirs aren't in MP3 format. Otherwise, I just would have shared the talk from his own voice. But there's a talk given a few months back uh, titled Faith in the Past, Church History in an Information Age. And this was given by Spencer Fluman. Uh, Brother Fluman is a professor of history at Brigham Young University, where he teaches American religious history. He uh, His work has appeared in the New York Times, Journal of Religion and Society, Journal of Mormon History, BYU Studies Quarterly, in the Mormon Historical Studies. He's uh, a very smart guy, obviously is very with it. In fact, as we uh, as we read this talk, I think you'll really love some of the things he has to share. And so with that, uh, here is Spencer Fluman's uh, talk, Faith in the Past, Church History in an Information Age. I'm deeply grateful for that musical number. My wife leaned over and said, that's a lot of power for so few people. And truly, I've never heard that sung better. The inspired words about charity and the inspired song about a prophet's voice lead rather naturally to my topic today. But I can't begin without first recognizing this incredible space in which we meet. Surely one of the great blessings for all of you in the LDS Business College community is the chance to meet here. I hope you don't take it for granted. If we were to pause and listen carefully, we might hear joy and faith from generations past echo out of these walls. I am fascinated and moved by generations past in this church. They have given to us a priceless inheritance, and I want to pay honor in part to those generations today. I'm so very honored to be with you today and to speak in this beautiful space. What historian could be anything but giddy standing here? I am a historian, but I've chosen not to talk about the past itself today but rather about our relationship to the past and our approach to it. I'll begin by telling you something you already know. We're living in an information age. In the time it takes to walk from my car to my Provo office, I can adjust my fantasy football roster, answer a student email, yes, the paper is due on Friday, text my wife, no, I forgot to grab apples, sorry, and check out my daughter's steady stream of tweets, which often link to something called a Vine which in turn sometimes contains videos of babies sneezing. It's a world of wonders we live in, although it can be a tad exhausting. Importantly for my topic today, this information explosion has fundamentally changed how many church members approach our religious past. For some, this has been exhilarating, since it has provided enhanced access and with incredible speed to an avalanche of information about LDS history and scripture. For many, though, this enhanced access has proven to be destabilizing, disorienting, or even corrosive to faith. 
I suspect most everyone listening today knows someone who has been troubled in their faith over what they've learned about our history. Whether it's early LDS polygamy or race and priesthood or the Book of Abraham or accounts of the first vision or issues of gender or sexuality, it is not uncommon for 21st century Latter-day Saints to encounter information online that is either new or troubling or both. I've been talking with students, parents, colleagues, and friends about these matters for many years. I suspect my conversations on related topics now number in the hundreds. Today I want to share some things I've learned from these sometimes difficult conversations. First, it is clear to me that Latter-day Saints in the past, the very saints who once occupied these same comfortable pews, often battled misrepresentation and misunderstanding. I acknowledge that these problems certainly persist to the present. They'll probably never end. But I'm convinced that future historians will regard our generation's challenge differently. I believe ours is not primarily a problem of lies or the misrepresentation of our history. Rather, it falls to us, my friends, to come to grips with the complex realities of our past, of things as they really are, to paraphrase DNC 93. Second, those who struggle with aspects of LDS history typically deal with more than questions about troubling content. Rather, it often becomes a matter of trust. They wonder why they were never told of this or that story, or of this or that detail. Many report finding it difficult to get straight answers, which only compounds their anxieties. Some have even been told by well-meaning leaders or friends to simply put their questions away. As if honest questions were themselves dangerous. They are sometimes left feeling isolated and alienated from their fellow saints. Third, many who struggle find themselves in what philosophers would call an epistemological crisis. Epistemology is the study of the nature and meaning of knowledge. How do we know what we know? For many in the midst of a faith crisis, the old ways of knowing become suspect. Can they trespass spiritual experiences? When the edifice of faith seems to be trembling, what authorities or sources or voices or experiences can settle such pressing questions? For many, this can be a very distressing experience. Fourth, those who struggle have often been devastated to hear, again, from well-meaning fellow saints, that questions or doubts essentially reduce to sin. This has usually been communicated to them in one of two ways. Some have been told that doubt is its, is itself sinful. Others have had it suggested to them that behind their doubts or concerns really is some secret transgression. Either way, it feels to them like evasive action or dismissal or non-acknowledgement of the very things causing them concern. As a result, some wonder if they've even been heard. I'll add here, too, that these are not strangers. These are people very close to me. Maybe you've known them as well. This brief list could be added upon or modified, I'm sure, but I offer it as a candid diagnosis of real and pressing concerns for the rising generation in this true and living church. The thrust of my message today is that we've not been left alone to fend for ourselves in this unruly information jungle. I'm convinced that our modern predicaments of faith and doubt have their resolution in the Restoration's revelations. I'm struck in particular with Doctrine and Covenants section 88, verse 118, which rather straightforwardly asserts that I've learned, asserts what I've learned during these years in the church history trenches. Quote, And as all have not faith, seek ye diligently, and teach one another words of wisdom. Yea, seek ye out of the best books, words of wisdom. Seek learning, even by study, and also by faith. With our topic in mind, several points explode off this scriptural page. For instance, in that remarkable opening line, God's own voice acknowledges that the modern church includes some, perhaps many, who lack faith. 
In fact, it's stated so casually, so matter-of-factly, that I'm persuaded we need to rethink doubt itself. Is doubt like a cancerous disease that demands inoculation, or quarantine, or frenzied attempts at eradication? Perhaps not. It may be that doubt is simply the stuff of life. No one needs to seek it out, after all. It finds all of us, at some level, at some point, much like pain or disappointment, I suspect. Without doubt, I wonder if real faith is even possible. I call your attention to Second Nephi, chapter 2, which talks about coming to know joy and righteousness because of their opposites. In other words, I'm convinced that doubt is the foundation from which real faith can be defined and experienced. Also worth noting is that the Revelation's answer to doubt relates to community. Those words, teach one another, offer a vision that stands in stark contrast to the loneliness and alienation that too many feel when sorting through these questions about church history and doctrine. How tragic that some struggling saints find what shreds of community they can in anonymous online comment sections rather than in their flesh-and-blood wards or biological families. Surely we can listen better. We can walk more compassionately with those who are earnestly seeking, and we can make our church and family spaces safer for those who have not faith. Finally, I'm moved by the confidence on display in that revelation. Evasive action? Not hardly. Nowhere in the section do we get some version of forget your questions and do your home teaching. Though as an aside, yes, please do your home teaching. The Lord's answer for a famine of faith is disarmingly simple. Study. Help each other with wise words, it suggests, and then study. Study with faith, ever and always, but study we must. In other words, God trusts us to seek and to learn and to ask and to dive deeply into the best books. The scriptures certainly rank as the best of books. I am regularly amazed at their usefulness for our seemingly for our seeming uniquely modern problems. To be clear, I can't think of a single modern spiritual conundrum that isn't helped and healed by scripture. But even as I acknowledge their undisputed position as the best of books, they clearly do not exhaust the category best books, especially when one considers LDS history. And I'll here call attention to the generation of faithful saints who have dedicated their lives to the research and writing of LDS church history. I know many of them personally and consider these women and men to be living models of the kind of faith and wisdom D&C 88 calls for. Theirs are certainly among the best books I know, from the Joseph Smith Papers Project to the Gospel Topics pages on LDS.org to the women and men across the earth, many not of our faith, writing our stories with compassion and honesty and generosity. We are not suffering from a lack of the best books. I have watched with joy over the years as many of my conversation partners have successfully navigated complicated questions of history and faith. Every story is different. We all have unique experiences and needs, but I've seen some commonalities in those who make peace with the difficult elements in our past. For one, they get comfortable with complexity and nuance. They went into their journey yearning for simple black and white answers, but in the end, many conclude that mortality sometimes provides only shades of gray on many subjects. Secondly, they get comfortable with the human side of the church. They get comfortable with the human side of church experience. They come to see past saints and leaders alike, less as cardboard superhero cutouts, larger than life, but two-dimensional, and more like real people. For some, this humanizing view of past saints actually makes them more compelling, not less. Instead of unreachable icons of piety and spirituality, they seem somehow more relatable in their humanity, somehow more usable as actual examples for struggling saints like you and me. 
Thirdly, those who have successfully navigated these sometimes choppy waters come to think differently about history itself. By that, I mean they get comfortable with the idea of change. They come to expect it. In fact, they come to see one's cultural and political and social context as mattering a great deal. They get comfortable with what history can and cannot prove. They come to realize that because the past is in many ways unavailable to us in the present, it is less like an exact science and more like a matter of argument and interpretation. They conclude, in fact, that matters of fundamentally spiritual, that matters as fundamentally spiritual as the prophetic calling of Joseph Smith cannot be arbitrated by history alone. Elder Neil L. Anderson wisely reminded us on Saturday's session of General Conference, quote, the importance of Joseph's work requires more than intellectual consideration. Perhaps most importantly, many of the saints who have made peace with troubling episodes in our history have come to see themselves as seekers. They see the pursuit of truth as a lifelong endeavor. For them, spiritual certainty comes piecemeal and only incrementally. To paraphrase Alma 32, verse 34, just because our knowledge is perfect in one thing doesn't mean our journey of faith is at its end. And there is no shame in not knowing yet. The mere desire to believe, after all, qualifies one for a place at the Lord's table. Elder Russell and Ballard put it this way on Sunday, quote, Having questions and experiencing doubts are not incongruent with dedicated discipleship. We want you with us as you sort through these tremendous questions of faith. I am suggesting that we can be simultaneously more confident, candid, and studious in our approach to church history, and more faithful, hopeful, and charitable too. A study of church history will help us avoid the myth of prophetic infallibility on the one hand, and on the other help us view past leaders more charitably. Similarly, a careful study of church history will keep us from portraying this or that question as settled when there is not apostolic unity on the particular topic but we'll also be better able to see what, or more properly, who stands at the center of our faith, this restored church. And significantly, we'll find it difficult to seriously study church history without a deepened sense of humility. I'm struck by two examples from one of our most complicated and inspiring modern stories, that of the 1978 priesthood revelation. Not long after the revelation was announced, Elder Bruce R. McConkie offered a memorable example of the kind of humility history routinely forces upon the faithful. Quote, Forget everything that I have said, or what President Brigham Young or President George Q. Cannon or whomever has said in days past that is contrary to the present revelation. We spoke with a limited understanding and without light and knowledge that now has come into the world. We have now had added a new flood of intelligence and light on this particular subject, and it erases all the darkness and all the views and all the thoughts of the past. In a similar vein, President Spencer W. Kimball himself provides one of the most poignant lessons about church history. Looking back on the Revelation, he candidly described his struggle as a deeply personal and internal one. Quote, day after day, and especially on Saturdays and Sundays, when there were no sessions in the temple, I went there when I could be alone. I was very humble. I was searching for this. I wanted to be sure. I had a great deal to fight, myself largely, because I had grown up with this thought that Negroes should not have the priesthood, and I was prepared to go all the rest of my life until my death and fight for it and defend it as it was. As a young scholar, I expected to find evidence of the Latter-day Saints waiting on God for the change. Transformed by accounts like President Kimball's, I emerged humbly, humbly persuaded that God was waiting on us. 
I ended up, in other words, with a wealth of unexpected insight into revelation, mortality, history, and a host of other topics when I sought out learning by study and also by faith. As a result, I don't fear our history. Years ago, when I was sorting through the historical thickets of Nauvoo polygamy, I came across a retrospective account written by one of Joseph Smith's plural wives, Helen Marr Kimball Whitney. I had been working for months, anxiously trying to make sense of it all. A line in her account went through me like electricity. Speaking of early LDS polygamy, she wrote simply, quote, It is a subject that can bear investigation, unquote. Her confidence rebuked me. It struck me. She wanted to be understood on her own terms. Moreover, I sensed that to forget her or to apologize for her was a shabby monument to her faith. And so I am a witness to history's powerful capacity to mold and shape us as disciples of Jesus Christ. In straining to see clearly into the past dark glass, we can come to see ourselves and the Lord more clearly, even acknowledging the very human difficulties in our stories. I bear witness that there is more than enough inspiration and edification to compensate. Indeed, our history is a reservoir with spiritual resources sufficient to feed us spiritually for a lifetime and beyond. I am not a committed Latter-day Saint in spite of my careful study of LDS history, but because of it. In the Restoration's account of the fall of Eden's paradisical simplicity, first Eve and then Adam come to realize that the price of lasting spiritual progress is mortality's complexities and pain. I think that price remains true for disciples, and I, for one, will gladly pay it. Looking back, would we trade the thorns of doubt for our high mountain moments of faith and vision? Would we turn back to the safety of the simple? In the end, the fall was more than compensated for in the wisdom and growth gained on the journey of faith. That was the promise to Eve, to Adam, to all of us, if we'll study, teach, and seek it out. As one who has endeavored to do just that with church history, I testify of Joseph Smith's prophetic calling and of the truth of the scriptures he brought to the world. I pray that each of us may sense God's hand in our rich past, in our stormy present, and in our bright, very bright future. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. I I just want to share just a couple of thoughts in closing. One is I thought it was absolutely profound that he said that the task of our day is to to deal with these issues. He says, rather it falls to us, my friends, to come to grips with the complex realities of our past, of things as they really were. And this hits the nail on the head. This is the task that our generation has in the church, that those living over the next 10 to 15 years will have to sort all this out and make more sense of it in the way that we teach it and testify of it and shape it and frame it. I also found it interesting that he talks about um, the idea of doubt not being sin and that we may have to, as a church, reevaluate how we have framed doubt. And I think he doesn't say it specifically, but he obviously is aware that church leaders have framed doubt as the opposite of faith and that where doubt is, faith cannot be. And he obviously is hitting that head on without, without throwing a leader, a specific leader under the bus. He says essentially that that framework is wrong and needs to be adjusted. My only concern with the talk was that in two or three places, he mentions those who lack faith. And while he is trying to paint them as just as worthy and on the same exact level as those who have faith, 
I, I fear that those who read talks like this will see themselves as greater than those who lack faith. That somehow we've got to find the words in the framing to talk about doubt in those who lack faith in a way that doesn't paint them as less than. And I don't think that as a church we've done that yet. Anyway, I thought the talk was great. I wanted to share it with each of you. Please uh, feel free to share any comments you've got. And uh, God bless each of you. May the Lord warm your shoulders in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Taking out my issues never healed